Hello, everyone, and welcome to this very special 5 by 15 event in partnership with The Moth. The Moth, of course, needs very little introduction. An acclaimed nonprofit dedicated to the art and craft of storytelling, it's been running now for over 25 years. Since its launch in 1997, The Moth has hosted tens of thousands of curated events, open mic story slams and workshops for live audiences around the world. Some of the Moth's directors and storytellers have now authored an extraordinary book, How to Tell a Story, which is a New York Times bestseller. Details of the book will be there in the chat for you this evening. We're so honoured to have some of the Moth's directors and storytellers here with us today to discuss it and to celebrate this most vital of human art forms. I'm sure you'll have plenty of questions for our speakers today. Don't forget that you can post these at any time in the Q Zoom Q&A box, and we'll have a bit of time at the end for those. I'm now going to hand over to our host this evening, John Good, who's an Emmy-nominated author, poet, playwright, and a regular host of The Moth. He's going to tell us a little bit more about how this evening will run. John, thank you so much, and over to you. How you doing, man? We're so excited to be here with you uh, this evening. Uh, so excited to be with the good folks at 5 by 50. Team. Uh, yeah, man, at the Moth, we, we've been doing it for 25 years. Last year, we celebrated our 25th anniversary. In celebration, we released a book, How to Tell a Story. It is an essential guide to storytelling. You may say to yourself, I'd like to tell a story. I just don't know how. This, is, this book is put out to help you, to give you tidbits and exercises to help you tell a story. Whether you want to tell it on a stage or maybe just at the family cookout, you just want to tell a good story. This is absolutely 100% the book for you. Tell you a bit about tonight. Tonight, we are, um, we're going to have two storytellers and two directors. They're going to come to you um, from two different cities. One, London, England, which I love. If I can't be in London, at least virtually, I can teleport myself into London and host this event. The second story is coming from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And uh, our storytellers and our, our directors, will they're going to come on after you hear the story. And they're going to talk to you a bit about the process. I think people think these stories come out whole. But there's actually a partnership between the director and the storyteller uh, where they craft these stories and make them what they are going to be. A lot of people don't have access to to hear how this kind of, you know, how this happens. But tonight you will have that access. You will get to peek behind the curtain and you will get to see how the sausage gets made. So let's get into it. All right. First up, we have Ash Bardwaj. He told this story at a, a Moth main stage in Union Chapel right there in London, England, where the theme of the night was Don't Look Back. Here's Ash. The whole family was there in the living room of my uncle's house in Manchester. My mum was there, my sister was there, cousins and uncles. And it was only when they brought my father's casket in that people started to cry. It was only when they opened it that people started to wail. I was 21 years old and all I could think about was trying to do the funeral ritual correctly. My father was a Hindu and the ceremony was conducted by a Hindu priest in Sanskrit, which is a bit like the Indian version of Latin for Roman Catholicism. So he would the priest would explain to my cousin what he was doing in Hindi. My cousin would explain to me in English, and I would be confused. <laughs> and there was some throwing of flower petals. I had to light a candle. had to pour some Ganges water and walk around the coffin a few times and touch it at the end of my father's feet. 
My dad, as I said, was a Hindu, but he wasn't really a typical Indian. He was the white sheep of the family. He was the only one of all of his brothers or sisters to marry a white woman, my mum, who's English and Scottish. And when we were kids, he had no interest at all in introducing us to our Indian heritage. And it's only because of my mum regularly taking us to see my family in Maidenhead that I had any understanding of my Indian heritage at all. I can remember every time we went to the family house of having to ask them what the food was. I have no idea today what Diwali really means, and I know the names of none of the 330 million Hindu gods. <laughs> back in the afternoon of the funeral, we were back in my uncle's house, and it was quiet now. There were a few family members tidying up, moving things around, and the mood was quiet, but it wasn't particularly somber. I remember a cousin telling me about a story of dad trying to get the Rolling Stones to play at Slough College. <laughs> and my eldest uncle was sat at the table with his hands folded, and he asked me to sit down. Now, he'd always been the head of the family, always telling, always offering my father advice. But my dad was quite a stubborn guy, and he hadn't spoken to my uncle for about 10 years. And he said, son, he always called me son, he said, son, uh, you have to take your father's ashes to India. And this is a ritual called tarpan. And tarpan is part of the Indian metaphysics and part of the philosophy and the religion that you take the ashes to this place called Haridwar, which is where the river Ganges comes out of the mountains and flows across the plains. And you put the ashes in the river, and this helps the soul of the deceased person move on into the afterlife so they can be reborn. Now, this didn't mean a lot to me. The idea of being Indian felt about as true to me as being French or Greek. And I also didn't feel particularly obliged to do anything for my father. I didn't really feel any duty towards him. There'd been a time when I would have done anything to spend time with my dad. In fact, when I was a kid, I started to play cricket just because my father had played cricket in India, and I thought that we could go and spend some time together in the nets. But I think that only happened once. I did spend time with my father going around the pubs and restaurants of Windsor. My dad had been a, a pub landlord and he owned some wine bars. And he was well known, he was a well-liked character around the town. One time, I was about 13 or 14, uh, dad had actually lost the restaurants by this point through bankruptcy. And he was still managing them, although he didn't own them. And it was only really through the efforts of my mother that the bars and restaurants were still going at all. And she was also working a second job as a cleaner to try and get enough money for us to get the things we needed for school. My dad was playing pool. And by this time, I started to get a bit of an understanding of what an alcoholic was. And even though I could recognize his frailties, I still, still believed in him. But he decided to bet with the guy he was playing with. And because I still believed in him, I crossed my fingers and I willed the number eight ball into the pocket. He missed. And in doing so, he squandered an afternoon of my mother's hard work, and I never respected or trusted him again. I was supposed to have taken the ashes back within one year, and six years later, my family were insistently calling me and telling me that I had to go back and take them now. They said, look, you've taken your time, you've done the things you wanted to do, you've enjoyed the things you wanted to do, so now you have to do this duty. So I went to Manchester, picked up the ashes, and I went to India to go and do the, do the ritual. I'd actually gone via an expedition, and my sister, my younger sister, came to meet me in Delhi from Heathrow, and I'd come from Nepal. 
We met together at the airport and we drove to my cousin's house on the outskirts of Delhi. When we got there, my cousin told me that I would have to leave my father's ashes outside the house. It's bad luck to bring them into a house. And I had this image in my head of a, a thief stealing the steel urn overnight, running off into the distance with his, his hall and opening it to only find a, a, an urn full of human dust and being rather disappointed. The next morning, I, my cousin told me I had to shave. I had a beard from the expedition. She told me to put on a, a long white shirt, a kurta. This felt quite significant. It felt like I was preparing for some significant and important ritual. And when we left the house, it was early in the morning and the streets of Delhi were quiet. I'd never seen them quiet before. They're normally full of cows and traffic and pollution and cars and motorbikes. But on this morning, it was one of those amazing dawns that you only ever find in the subcontinent. And the only things on the, on the road were a, a few cows munching at the roadside and people on bicycles. It was really quite magical. And as we carried north and left the city behind, I saw the green of the Indian countryside and rivers, and it felt like the India of myth and legend. And then when we got to Haridwar, our journey ended in a municipal car park. And we got out and we started to make our way down towards the River Ganges. And on either side of the road, there were uh, shops and stalls selling trinkets and holiday tats and pictures and postcards of, of Haridwar and all the paraphernalia of ritual. Because Haridwar is a place that people go to on holiday. They don't just go there for these funeral rites. They go there for pilgrimages and for blessings. We went past these stalls and we got to the edge of the River Ganges. And bizarrely, the first thing I thought about was Henley Royal Regatta. Because <laughs> the river runs very straight here and there's steps leading down to it for people to go into the river for the rituals. And there's loudspeakers blaring prayers and security announcements. And all the temples on the other side are covered in bunting. And we, we crossed over the river and we went down to a place called Haki Pori. And this is where God, or one of the 330 million gods had stepped onto earth from heaven. And my cousin pointed to a, a stool. She pointed at the stool and she said, Bardwaj, which is my family name. And I looked at it and realized she was pointing at the writing on the stool. And I realized that I couldn't read my own name in Hindi. I looked at it, trying to see some kind of familiarity or recognition in it, but there was nothing. It was just Hindi scribbles. Now, every time someone goes to Haridwar to get their ritual done, the family's always looked after by a single priest. So my uncle had already called ahead to get the priest to be ready for us. And my cousin rang him on the mobile phone when we got there. And he came down and he was wearing all white and he was quite small. He had a moustache and he had glasses and he didn't speak English. So he spoke to my cousin and shook my hand, nodded at me. And then they immediately began ferociously haggling over the price. Now, I'd heard about the mercantile nature of Hindu priests, but my understanding of religious men is based on the doddery old vicars of Anglican tradition. So this was still something of a surprise. And it was all very dramatic. There was head tossing and flair and, oh, looks of dismay. And eventually they settled on a price uh, for spiritual peace for my father. And we made our way down to the river. <laughs> and we sat on a small square of marble that projected into the river. I was closest to the river. And my sister was on my right-hand side, and the priest was opposite us. And we immediately began the ritual. And he was saying words in Sanskrit that I had to repeat, and I didn't know what the words were. So I asked him to translate through my cousin, who he spoke to in Hindi. She spoke to me in English, and I was confused. <laughs> and then the ritual continued. And there was lighting of candles, and there was throwing of petals. 
we got to this point where we had to hold a coconut. And this coconut represented the temporary carriage of my father's soul. It was taken out of limbo and prepared to be sent on its journey into the afterlife. And then the priest asked for more money. Apparently, because I'd taken six years to do this, it was much harder for him to pull dad's soul out of limbo, <laughs> put it in this coconut and send it on this journey again. So my cousin and he eventually agreed to a price. 2,000 rupees is the cost of bringing a soul out of limbo after six years. And the ritual continued. And then we got to the final part where we had to pour the ashes in. This is the moment that I'd been, that had been hanging over me for six years. This was the mission that my uncle had set for me six years beforehand. This was the culmination of all of that. And I was expecting a sense of closure, a sense of satisfaction, a sense of even though I hadn't, even though my father hadn't been a great dad to me, I'd done something for him. And I wanted to take this moment in. I wanted to feel very present in it. I wanted to share it with my sister. And I looked at her and I could see a tear running down her cheek. And I felt very present in this moment. And then all I got was jaldi, jaldi, jaldi from the priest. And the only reason I knew what he meant was because from watching cricket, this is what the Indian cricket team say to their bowlers when they want them to go faster. <laughs> so whilst I was trying to absorb this spiritual moment, I was being hurried up by this Indian priest, and my sister and I both put our hands on the urn and chucked dad's ashes into the river. And that was it. It was done. And I felt no closure, and I felt no satisfaction, and I felt no completion. And then the priest got up, nodded to my cousin, and walked off into the streets of Haridwar. My sister and I sat there bemused, and we looked at each other, and we hugged each other, and we looked around scared, just as we had the first time we'd gone to India when we were kids. And we followed my cousin through the streets of Haridwar. And we followed her through to a courtyard, and in the courtyard there was a cow munching some grass and a plastic bag. And the courtyard was surrounded by rooms, and inside one of these rooms we found our priest. And he was sat on the floor, and he had a scroll open in front of him. And he was all smiles and friendly, and he offered us tea, and the business-like nature had gone, and he was a friendly old vicar or priest. And he asked us to come in and sit down, and he pointed at the scroll. And it was long, and it was thin, and it was bound along the top, and on it there was Hindi writing. And on the walls all around us there were shelves with hundreds more of these scrolls bound in really incongruous cloth like Burberry tartan prints. And they looked like snails curled up on the wall, hundreds of them. And he started to talk to him about the one on the ground, translated through my cousin, of course. Every time somebody goes to Haridwar to take their loved one's ashes back, they go and do this ceremony afterwards. And we wrote down all the names of all the people who'd come to do the ceremony, me, my cousin, my sister. And we wrote down the dates, and we wrote down the story of how my father died, and we wrote down a bit about him. And then we wrote down the entire family tree. So we wrote down all of my dad's brothers and sisters and their children and their children. And my sister's name was written down and our other sister's name and her kids were written down. And all my cousins who've had, had kids since the last family member had passed away. And my dad's name was written down in his dad's name. And then the priest showed me the first time my name had appeared in this book. He showed me the first time my dad's name had appeared in this book. He showed me my grandfather's signature when he'd come to bring his father's ashes back, and my great-grandfather's signature. 
The family tree in this place goes back 13 generations. That's 350 years. In other parts of India, my family tree is recorded back to two and a half thousand years. And all of a sudden, I felt connected to this long tribe of Indians, all of whom had done exactly the same thing as me. They brought a loved one to Haridwar, poured the ashes in the river, and then, nervous and bemused and scared, they'd come to this room and done this same ritual and written their names down. And I felt connected to them. I felt connected to my heritage. And the priest said to me, he said, you know, it's a good thing you've come on this day. I asked him why. Apparently it was a solar eclipse, and astrology is very important to Hinduism. And by doing the ritual on the day of a solar eclipse, it'd been extra powerful and been very good for dad in his afterlife. So the irony was that by delaying it by six years, I'd actually done a good job for my dad. <laughs> and as I sat there taking all this in, I just imagined this connection to my family, this lineage of people that I'd come from. And so even though my dad hadn't been a good father in life, in death, he finally helped me feel a little bit Indian. Man, give it up for Ash. What a story. What a story of family, man. I just, I love this so much. It's, You know, to stand on stage, whether it's in front of 10, 100, or 1,000, it is an act of bravery. Um, to let people so intimately into your life is an act of generosity. And Ash's story exemplifies both of those things. And it's educational, because before now, you probably didn't know how much it costs to take a soul from limbo and put it into a coconut. You probably didn't have that information, and now you do. And so now we get to meet uh, fantastic, wonderful uh, Ash right here on our, on, our, on our virtual stage with us, and his director, Meg Bowles also on the stage, and we're going to join in some conversation to hear, you know, how this story came about. So I'm going to start it off with a question. Um, how did you decide on this particular story? Take it away, guys. All right. Hi. Um, hi, Ash. It's good to see you. Um, I think, you know, when I first found out about Ash, you know, he's a, a, a journalist and an explorer and adventurer. And so, you know, <clears throat> often, excuse me, I have a little something in my throat. Um, often, you know, the hardest part of sitting down with the storyteller is figuring out what story they're going to tell. And, um, and it usually starts with a long conversation. And when, so when I first came to the call with Ash, I was kind of under the assumption that it would be a story about, you know, trekking a river or doing some kind of amazing adventure of some sort. And, uh, but pretty, I think pretty quickly, this story kind of bubbled up for Ash because it was, um, well, I'll let you answer Ash. I mean, why, why did this particular story, do you think bubble up for you? No, I think, um, I mean, my day job is travel journalism, but the bits that I enjoy the most are the intersection of sort of travel and then either like social or current affairs. When does travel tell you something interesting or new about the world? And You know, I kind of presumed we'd end up talking about something from uh, northern Uganda or Sudan, one of those really, like I said, really challenging things that 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 had something slightly different about it. So I hadn't really expected to end up speaking about a journey that wasn't physically arduous, but we were talking about India uh, and why it's somewhere that mattered to me. It'd been a few years since I'd done this journey, and... Um, 
as we talked about it, I realised it was the one that actually mattered to me the most. It wasn't the most physically challenging, but it was the one that took me seven years to do, six years, six or seven years to do. Um, so I think it was that that really popped up this unexpected challenge about it. And I, I think stories that are personal that have an emotional component do resonate with people. And I think it was just the way you responded to it when I was talking about all the different journeys I'd done. And it was your initial response that probably gave me the indication that there was more to this story than there was the others. Yeah, I think that's it's such a good point, because I often I often find that the stories that mean the most to us are generally the best stories, because when you're telling them, people automatically understand why the story is important to you. And so having that kind of deep personal connection is 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 kind of a a great foundation for a great story is when something really matters to you. And in the end, it was an adventure story because you did go on this adventure and there were all these kind of interesting moments and details. I remember when um, you first told it to me, it just kind of came out in a, in pretty much the sequence that you ended up telling it and you went away and you wrote up a draft of that um, I mean, what was like? What was that like for you? Kind of trying to transport what you said onto page, what you told me. It's funny. So, because I'm a travel journalist, you know, travel journalism is about inspiration and information, and then you're trying to get that across when you're writing for the papers or the magazines in um, in either prose, so that's just text or conversation. So you already start to think about that in those ways, but then you end up describing things in an over literary way so you're you're quite strong in information or over literary um or at least when you're when you're trying to put it down on paper and w- what I found was in writing it down I think I lost a lot of the things from when I'd first told it to you which was much simpler much more basic and much more raw so there was this process of I'd overcomplicated it and then trying to get it back to that raw simplicity, because we tend to speak in a more simple way than we write, sort of over-intellectualized writing. And I think it was pulling it back to that that effectively became the work that we went through in our conversations. Yeah, I agree. It's it's interesting because we often tell people not to write it down because they'll get too married to their words and they'll try to memorize a story and really you want to share a story. So you don't want to um, necessarily write it in full. Often I'll have storytellers kind of write down the basic kind of um, map, like a map of the way they want to go through a story and, and kind of use that as a guide, but not necessarily as a script, you know, because, because it does exactly what you're saying. It kind of will sometimes flatten it where people will get too flowery with the language and, and it you lose that personal that the way that you talk with a friend over dinner, where how you just kind of tell the story without it being too perfectly polished. <clears throat> I do remember the big note giving when uh, when you sent me what you had written, and, and it was really more for you to kind of dump out all your memories onto a page so we could kind of see all the pieces that we had to play with because you had so many beautiful moments all the way through it, and. Um, and using that as a way to kind of form us into time so that we weren't too long. 
But uh, I remember one of the big notes, and I think this happens a lot with journalists, is uh, journalists are very fact-based. You know, they, they just the facts, ma'am, you know, they're very, um, and, and I was asking you often about uh, how did you feel? Like I was looking back at my original notes that I sent you and it was like, how did you feel in this moment? And how did you feel in this moment? And, and, um, and so, and I guess that's probably different than how you generally approach a, telling a story in journalism. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I mean, I guess it depends which type of journalism uh, you're, you're writing, but I also do think like, as my writing has gone on, uh, impressions and responses uh, matter. As long as they're you know, qualified, you don't want to just be going running around throwing your prejudice about things about. Um, but the the other thing was, as I started to think about the feelings more, it changed the way I'd structured it. So when I sent the first draft to you after our initial conversation, I think I made it completely chronological, like my relationship with my dad when I was a kid, then going to spend time with his family, and completely chronological. And then instead, as we started to think about the feelings, I think you asked me something like, what was the emotional driver? What was the moment that this happened? Which was being back at my uncle's house, which is where the story ended up starting. And then through this thread, it led on to these little segues, these little side pieces where this emotion triggered this memory. And that made it more like the way we construct stories and, and memory than that chronological sequence I'd had. So by thinking about the feeling, it ended up being a more natural form of storytelling as well. Yeah, and and it's uh, it's interesting because you end up very punctuating with emotion throughout. I also found it really fascinating just listening to it again now, how even though you're recounting something that is emotional, that there are all these beautiful organic moments of humor that kind of break <laughs> up. You know, like what John had pointed out about how much it costs to release the soul after six years. There were all these like, like very sweet moments of levity that I don't necessarily think, you know, they felt more when you were telling it, it the story kind of came alive on stage and you like these little, little moments of humor kind of, kind of sprung up. And I think that that was really beautiful. Um, I, I'd forgotten about that too. And so I think there's two things. But like, but I remember before I went out, feeling this is quite a heavy story, and I wasn't quite sure how it would land. I mean, I didn't want to make everyone feel miserable, but I think in all in all dark moments in life, there can be there can be the this this black humour, you know, this 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 gallows humour, this sort of um, uh, and, and just the ridiculousness of of quite profound moments that are quite yeah just silly um and one of the things I think I was nervous about when I first came to this process is how am I going to remember this and instead of remembering words I think there were probably certain terms of phrase that I did end up remembering just because I practiced it two or three times but actually, there's a difference between delivering a script and telling a story and having these sort of kernels of events along the way that you remember turns it along. And then you, you end up reacting to the audience that you're with. And I think the moth audience is very sympathetic. They're very kind and they want you to succeed. And they're, they're sort of quite an enveloping, caring 
feel in the audience. Um, I mean, even as I think about it now, I feel quite emotional. So it, it's a very sim symbiotic relationship. And I think therefore, the, you know, the humour ended up popping up naturally. But also this was quite a, um, quite a difficult process for me to go through thinking about it. I mean, I'd, I'd written elements of this story before and I told the story to my friend, but it wasn't like something I hid away as a secret story. But by going through it in this very unpacking way and thinking about the emotion and the trigger points and the links, it had a therapeutic element uh, to it. So when I then spoke about it on stage, I found it a very significant moment for me of dealing with, you know, sort of trauma of an alcoholic father and the things related to that uh, and making me realise how significant this moment was to me in in terms of my identity, not just becoming a British Indian or an Indian or a British person, but something new that was me. So that whole process was very powerful as well. Well, and I loved how you, you know, you have these beautiful scenes that are clearly beautiful memories that are very emotional. Like you open with the funeral and the, the ritual of the funeral and how kind of out of fish out of water, you feel in the actual ritual of it and, and how complex those emotions are around your dad. And you bring us, you don't just tell us about your dad. You show us this beautiful scene of him gambling in an afternoon and how that's the thing that broke your trust. And, and I think it's those scenes, those moments, that beautiful scene at the end where we, all the signatures, like I get chills even thinking about it, like how, and you saw your grandfather's signature and you saw your great grandfather's signature. And it, there's something about when you pull those, those emotional moments, those memories out and scenes and let us kind of, it's almost like a movie. Like we're right there with you feeling it and seeing it. And it's, it's really powerful the way you did that. I thought. <clears throat> Thank you. I, yeah. I, and I don't know how conscious that was. There's this thing, I teach journalism now, and then there's something I learned a few years later uh, is the phrase show, don't tell. So, you know, talk about something rather than... We love that one. People <laughs> wanted them off. Yeah, so rather than, like, saying, my dad was an alcoholic, he gambled, like, you, I, I told a story. And it wasn't conscious. It was just the thing that happened naturally through the way that we talked through the process of it. And, I, you know, you guided me along with, like, with, with, with really good questions. So rather than telling me what to do, you gave me questions that helped me find the elements of the story that connected it. Um, I found the whole process of working with you, which is why you're such a good director and producer, obviously. <laughs> I, I found the whole process of working with you felt very um, easy and natural. And I guess, that, I mean, that's a skill of, of good storytelling, directing and producing, is finding ways to draw those things out of people. So I mean, they, any storyteller has all the answers within them, but it requires someone to help pull those things out and shape them. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was, and it was a pleasure working with you. It was such a beautiful, I, I love that story so much. I think about it often. Um, yeah, oh, I had more questions, but now John is back. So <laughs> I am assuming we must move on, but thank you so much, Ash. This has been really fun. Thank you. Thank you for letting me become a part of the Moth family. It was um a really important experience for me and I still carry on those skills I think those skills that you taught me I still use them very regularly now so I'm a lucky lucky man to have done it thank you <laughs> thank you both thank you both so much what a what a, a powerful conversation I was listening myself 
And it's it's just incredible stuff how in telling telling a story is it's therapeutic, but it's also how you reveal yourself unto yourself uh, through the process of telling the story. So, man, thank you once once again to uh, our fantastic and wonderful director, Meg Bowles, and our storyteller, uh, Ash Bardwash. Thank you all so much for sharing this conversation in this time. And we're going to keep it uh, moving on. We have this fantastic and wonderful storyteller, uh, Kate Tellers. And she told this story at a main stage at the Players Club in New York City, where the theme of the night was, here, there be dragons. And here's Kate. In our little house on the north side of Pittsburgh, we had one television. It was black and white. We kept it behind the couch, and I was never allowed to watch it. Most nights, it was my mother, my father, me, some wooden blocks. It was very little house on the prairie, but in the 1980s. One day, though, when I was about four years old, I snuck across the street to my neighbor's house, and she let me watch The Love Boat. And it blew my mind. <laughs> when I think about it now, I can just picture uh, Gavin McLeod dressed in a captain's uniform, making out with all of these beautiful women with perfect perms. I loved it. When I came home, I asked my mother why uh, they kissed in that crazy way. And that was like a really difficult thing for my mother to explain to me, but finally she was like, well, um, when people love each other like a whole lot, that is the way that they kiss. So when she came in that night to put me to bed, I grabbed her head and I smashed it up against mine and I went like that and moved it back and forth. <laughs> I loved my mother and my father so much. When our other friends, when, when people were getting pets and people would get like a guinea pig and name it Punky Brewster or like a, a chihuahua and name it Sting, I got two goldfish and I named them Paul and Lisa after my parents because they were my rock stars. <laughs> when my sister was born, um, they named her Alice and we would go to parties and they would introduce us and people would laugh and they would say, oh yeah, yeah, like Kate and Allie. And we would say like, uh-huh. We had no idea because we didn't watch TV that there was a television show called Kate and Allie on TV on everyone else's color TVs all around the country it would be like naming your kids Will and Grace right now but the rest of the world existed outside of our family in fact when it came time for me to write my college essay I wrote my college essay on the power of my parents divorce because it uh, changed my relationship all of our relationships together and took us on to our next adventure together I did get into college though uh, despite that, and uh, about the day before, the, or the day before I was to go to college, my mother and I were having lunch, and she confessed to me that she uh, had seen a doctor and she was sick. And it wasn't a big deal, she was just going to have some chemo and she would be fine. And I really did honestly believe her, but uh, I couldn't unhear that. Uh, and I felt like I suddenly had to start considering a world with this big hole where my mom should be. And I would go for months and months and months and I, and I wouldn't think about it and then I would be reminded of it. And we'd be spending time together and it's like my brain would split and part of me would be completely present, but the other part of me would be outside of us. And I'd be just taking notes and trying to sear them onto my brain in case I ever needed them when she wasn't there. After college, I moved to New York and I used to go and um, sometimes on Friday afternoons, I would drive from New York City across the state of Pennsylvania to Pittsburgh to her apartment. And I'd get in really late and she'd open the door and she'd say, 
would you like a glass of wine? And I would say, yes. And we both knew that it wasn't a glass of wine because it never was. And we'd go into the kitchen and she would have laid out all of these mismatched blue and white plates with homemade hummus and white cheeses and salty olives and these huge globes that she'd fill with red wine. And somehow miraculously, we would sit at the table and talk and we would drink a lot of wine, but they would never be empty glasses of wine. And one night we're sitting and we're talking and she's laughing because she has just confessed to me that the hardest thing she ever had to do as a mother was to give me Ipecac to induce vomiting because when I was little, I accidentally ate a bunch of her asthma medicine. There was these little red coated pills and she could see the red in my mouth. And I had just confessed to her that I had actually eaten from the, um, the, this little container of Red Hots that we kept in our cupboard. It was the only candy in our house ever. And we used it once a year to put two eyeballs on a gingerbread man that we made. And, uh, but I didn't want to tell her that at the time because I knew that whatever she was freaking out about was bigger than the fact that I had stolen sugar from the house. So she's laughing about this and she throws her head back and my brain splits. And I start to take notes. And I note the way that she laughs so big that I can see the cavities in the back of her mouth. And that when she brings her head down, she pulls the turtleneck, uh, her turtleneck up to her chin and then rubs her hand over the ribs on her lavender sweater. And that her head is so small that, the sh that she shops in the children's section at Lens Crafters which I can tell because the candlelight catches the brand on the arm of her glasses, which is Harry Potter. <laughs> and we continue on like this uh, until we're so tired and we go to bed. And for a while things are very good and then things are bad and then things are good. And then one day she's visiting me in New York City and we're in Midtown, we're about to get on the subway, we've just seen a show and she stops me and she says, you know what, Marion McPartland, who hosts the show on public radio, Piano Jazz, that she loved, Marion McPartland is having an 85th birthday party at Birdland, and we should crash it. And this is my mom. She's the most gracious woman in the world. She wouldn't go to a block party without forcing me and my sister to be in dresses and making homemade tabbouleh and bringing wine, the whole thing. But she wants to crash this party, so we're going to go. And we walk up to Birdland, and we just charge right past the bouncers, and we go right up to the bar. And I squeeze us into some chairs and I order the fanciest drinks that I can think of, which at the time were vodka gimlets, because I really liked those glasses. And uh, we look around and it's like an Al Hirschfeld drawing of what's happening in jazz at that time. And I recognize like Tony Bennett and Nora Jones and there's Ravi Coltrane and the energy in the room is amazing. It's like we're seeing the show live, but in between all of these amazing performances, people are just loving up the birthday girl and you can just feel that it's one of those nights that everyone in the room will remember that could never be recreated again and Karen Allison who my mother and I both love takes the stage and she starts to sing Twilight World and I pick up my glass and I look and I turn to toast my mother and she's glowing and I take her in and my brain splits and I think this is good I can use this. Six Januaries later, I'm back in Pittsburgh. The doctors have told us that it's time to come home. And I'm in my mother's bathroom. And she's leaning on the sink. Um, she's wearing these pink striped pajamas that my sister has given her for Christmas the month before. And I see her look up and look at herself in the mirror. 
and I see a change come over her face. And she tells me to call a nurse. And she walks out of the bathroom and she walks down the hallway and she lays down in her bed and she falls silent. And I know that this is the day that I have been afraid of for 10 years. My sister and I had made a calendar um, and scheduled my mother's friends and family to come visit her in these days so that she would never be overwhelmed by too many guests, but that people could see her. And now we're calling everyone and we're telling them, come over now for what will probably be one of the worst days of your life. But because I'm my mother's daughter, I'm doing this as I'm pulling her plates off of the shelf and saying, but also bring cheese. And they do. People start coming, aunts and uncles, my father, my mother's boyfriend, my sister's boyfriend. We all pile into our living room. Someone puts in a Miles Davis CD and we're milling around. I've put food out and I'm filling people's glasses of wine and people start to go in to visit my mother. And I hear her saying to them, as she's laid out in her bed, can I get you anything? Can I get you a cup of tea? And I'm like, really? you're dying. Like, I am going to do this right now. So I start handing people saucers and empty cups. And I'm like, just carry this in so she knows that we're okay out here. And we do. And people go in with their cups. And I'm, you know, secretly refilling the wine and doing everything. And um, when hospice first came to visit us, they gave my sister and I this pamphlet. It's this little blue booklet and it's called Gone From My Sight, and there's a line drawing of a ship on it. And it explains in, in somewhat poetic but somewhat technical terms what happens to a body when a human being is starting to die. And I remember when they gave it to us, I kind of thought, like, I don't need your drawing of the Nina and the Pinta to sort of figure out this very personal moment for me, but in this moment, it's all that we have. We've never done this before. And my sister can tell from the way my mother is breathing that she doesn't have much time. So I go in to check on her and she's gotten out of her bed and she's standing at her closet and she's reaching up for a sweater. And I ask her what she's doing and she looks at me and says, I have to pack. And I don't know what to say to that. And so finally I say, mommy, where you're going, you don't need a suitcase. And she pauses and she scrunches up her face like she always does when she's thinking. And she nods and she lays back into her bed and she goes silent. And people start, start continue to go in and they start to say their goodbyes. And finally, it's my turn. And I go into her room and I sit down in her bed and I start rubbing her calves. And I know that I should say that, that I love her uh, and then I'll miss her. And then in 28 years, I can throw her the best 85th birthday party. And then after that, maybe sometime we'll explode in one big fireball so that neither of us would ever have to experience what it'd be like for one of us to live our lives without the other. But she knows all of that. So I just tell her that in the following November, I'm going to be a bridesmaid in my friend from high school Jess's wedding so that she knows that I have plans. <laughs> and then I tell her that I'm really excited that the dresses are green because they'll bring out my eyes. And then that's it. And I leave and I'm on the phone with Jess in the hallway 
when I hear my sister, my sister's a classically trained singer, and I hear this like Wagnerian wail hit all of these notes. And I know that my mother is gone. And we all gather in the living room and we drink all of the wine and we eat all of the cheese. And I bring out this bottle of limoncello that my mother keeps for special occasions because I figure that this one counts and I'm allowed. And so we drink all of that and uh, I go to bed, everyone leaves. The next morning I wake up and it's the day, it's the day that I've been afraid of. And I go into the kitchen and I open up the front of the coffee machine and I empty out the grounds. And I realize that I still know how to make a pot of coffee. And I go into the living room and I sit in her big blue leather chair and I open up my computer and I check my email. And there's an email from my friend Nick who I went to college with. We email a couple of times a year. And he's asking me how I am and telling me about his new job. And I just hit reply and I type, Nick, my mom died and it's real. And I wait for that big gut punch to hit me, that emptiness. And instead I feel the strangest thing. I just feel sad and it envelops me and it feels white and it feels hot and I feel full. Thank you. Wow. What a, what a powerful story. I've, I've been over here with my handkerchief the whole time, the whole time, Kate, the whole time. My goodness. I got to tell you, I, I, um, I know Kate. I've met Kate. I've hung out with Kate. We've had several conversations. But in people telling you their stories, you get to know them in a way that you would not, you would not get to know them otherwise. Uh, what we're doing here this evening is we're taking you behind the um, curtain of storytelling. But what stories do is they take you behind the curtain of people's lives. And there's just nothing else that can do that. One more time for Kate and that amazing story. Um, and we're going to move, we're going to meet up with Kate and her, uh, the director of her story, uh, Kate Tellers and the incomparable Catherine Burns. They're going to take our virtual stage. You can see them now. And I'm going to start you off with a question as well. Um, how did how did this story come about? Take it away. Uh, Kate, I must have heard this story. I must have heard you tell it. I mean, I might have heard you tell it 50 times all the time. <laughs> but I just cried like four times. It totally slayed me again today. Um, but yeah, we had known each other for a while. We'd been working together at the Moth for a while. I'd started as the person who we'd like to say has edited the podcast on like, what was it, GarageBand? <laughs> yep, the free software. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we got to know you and you came to work with us. And right, it's, and I knew that you had done one, one person shows and performed. And at some point, I think you came to me to talk to me about this and I was open and excited and we just started jumping in. Is that how you remember it? Yeah. I mean, I came to the moth <clears throat> kind of in hindsight, I realized largely affected by the loss of my mother and I wanted to talk about it. And you and I connected very early yes. that we both lost our mothers. And that was something that, that we both knew meant a lot to us. And I think it suddenly just occurred to me that, that like, I knew I wanted to tell stories about her. I knew that night that she died, the way we told stories, how important legacy and stories were that like, I needed to tell this story. Like I needed to talk about what it was like to actually go through the process of like 
passing over, you know, like crossing over. And so you were so amenable, but do you remember I used to send you, I didn't know exactly what the story was. And I think that's one of my favorite things as both the storyteller and sometimes on the other side is the process of like, you know, the experience is important to you, but you don't actually know what the story is, like what it means. And so I would just write you these emails, like thousands of words of all of these details. Like this is who my mother was. This is who we were, you know, and the memory of like love boat comes out and the memory of Birdland, and all of those things are in there as well as like a lot more. (laughs) And through your questions, I think we got to like the deeper meaning of the story. It wasn't just, Oh, this is this plot point. Kate is someone who lost her mother when she was relatively young, but like, what did that mean to Kate? And what did that process mean? Exactly. Because one of the things we think about a lot is like, there's, there are certain stories that are just very universal. Like many people at one point, unfortunately, will lose a parrot. And so when you're telling these stories that so many people have, it's never more important than like really digging into like, what is it? What is it? So what's specific about it to you? What is the part of it that only you can tell or that you could tell best? Um, and that is how we started to like lean into and to see all these instances of you trying to figure out like, I mean, you will say this better than me, but how to live your life in the most meaningful way while you, your mother was alive in the hopes that you would have no regrets after she died. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it, it been like the such a beautiful like side effect of working on the story is that I got to actually see that. Like, I think, you know, that was it, this like anxiety for 10 years of being like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm this person and uh, that's someday going to lose their parent, even though, you know, no one's days are guarantees. So I guess to some degree, we're all that. But um, it allowed me to be like, well, that's why I did that. That's why this, that's why this memory sticks in my mind. That's why I do this thing. That's why this plate that I still have in my kitchen means so much to me because I was just like, just like imprinting her and living in that, uh, this way in which I was just constantly preparing for this loss. Um, which I don't think I'd known until we started talking. And that became a lot of what we talked about, like that was unique, also unique how close she and I were. I mean, every, everyone yeah. has parents to, of some definition, but not everyone feels the same way about their parents as I felt about my mother. I mean, like not everyone French kisses their parents. <laughs> or names their goldfish for them. Or names their gold, you know, people yeah. have other people in their lives. They weren't as strange <laughs> as our nuclear family was, but um but also that became like the active part of the story instead of here's a plot point of the story. It's what what's as I as the storyteller in the center of the story, what do I want in this story? And obviously the big one is I don't want my mother to die, but it's like I right. want to be as present with my mother. I want to be so alive with my mother that when she's gone, I don't feel like there's anything we missed yeah, to the degree that that's possible. Like, obviously, you know, totally. I should be here. Right. And that creates a different sort of tension than just the tension of knowing that you might lose your mother alone. I also think one of the things we have in common is we both lost our mothers over the course of like nine, 10 years, which is like, you know, we're just like stretched out and you always hope for a different outcome, but then slowly, slowly, slowly the world, you know, it sort of closes in on you. Um, One of the things I think early on we talked about is the fact that your mother was such a hostess. You know, I have cloth napkins in my house because of Lisa, your mom. (laughs) Um, I feel like she looks after me a little too. I wouldn't want to let her down. Um, But we talked a lot about growing up with this, with so much around being a hostess, taking care of others, showing your love for others, 
through the things you do for them and how you did that all the way down to the moment of her death. Like one of my, I also love how much humor is in your story. One of the things that always gets me is when she's like saying, can I get you anything? And I remember <laughs> like the first time you told me that story, you were like, mom, you're literally dying. No, you cannot get anyone anything. Um, but yeah. And then, um, and then I'm, I'm always, it always gets me with the suitcase. Um, but one of the things in one, well, a, a phrase we use a lot at the moth in, in the book is like stakes. And so what we're talking about here really is the stakes. Like, you know, what are the stakes for you? And what are the, when we say stakes, what we usually mean by that is like, why do you care? Why should we care? You know, what happens if Kate doesn't get what she wants? Um, because like, if you can convince us how much you care, then we will automatically, in my experience, care. You know, if, if you can make us really feel like Meg was talking about earlier, like the emotion and why you care so much that of all the stories that you could be telling right now, you're telling this one, then chances are the listener will also care too. Um, I also think a lot of your care comes out in the details, which they were also talking about in Asha's story. Um, the details of like the Harry Potter glasses, you know, the cloth napkins, the plates, the mismatched blue plates. I always think of that. <laughs> um, you really paint a picture of who your mother was and who you as a family are in those details so that when we lose her at the end, I think we feel the loss of her so much with you because we have a sense of who we've lost, even though we've only had the chance to be with her for 12 minutes. Um, yeah. Um, that was, that was, I want to let you talk some more. Sorry. Oh, that's um, okay. Yeah, we, we also talk a lot about agency, you know, um, do you want to talk about that? You know, it's, you're not just recounting what happened. Yeah. And I mean, speaking of the cloth napkins, do you, at one point I sent you like a list of the rule, <laughs> like like the way to host like my mother hosts. And I remember you were so drawn to it. And I was like, well, this is an interesting detail. You know, does it belong? But then in hindsight, it's like, yes, because it's what I it's what I took from her and what I, yeah. you know, like it did end up making sense. But we had to sort of take all of those details and think like in the framing of the story, does this make sense? And then I found an email recently when I was going through a thread where we were talking about obsessing over the placement of the goldfish. It was like, do the yes. people need to know and where that like, just like the meticulous way you can get through all of those things where now I'm like, of course the, the goldfish belong there. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in a, in a, just a straight story sense, the idea that the storyteller has agency, that life isn't something that happens to you, that life is like a compelling stories is, you know, to the point of stakes, like a story where someone wants something. So it's like, even though I was waiting for an event, uh, which I had no control over, I wasn't simply just sitting passively and waiting. Not that there's anything wrong with that. That just wouldn't have been a story necessarily. Right. Um, but there, you know, so there was this like activity and this action and that that then when I realized that it, for the story piece, then we were able to be like, well, then this is the way we would tell the scene at Birdland. Let's see the moment of you actually pausing and realizing that you were present in the moment, but also like putting this file in your head. Yeah, but then the on the camera in your brain. Yeah. Exactly. That I, that I was like consciously aware of, like, I want to be so present in this moment because I'll never have it again, but I also want to have this moment like in a suitcase. And then, um, so that, that, I think helped me understand again, like my own experience, but then also, you know, there, there was like a double whammy benefit for me and that it helped me understand who I was at that time. But then it also helped with the shaping of the story. Um, and I think particularly in this story, there's like a triple thing where now it's a record, you know, now I've said it and now, you know, about that and everyone here knows about that. And then, so in the process of 
working on the story, I was able to start to think like, if I were to choose any detail that would correctly, like it, it meant so much for me to tell that story because I cared so much about it, which made me, you know, care more about what went in and what went out. My apologies if I could just hear the boom box. We're in Brooklyn. It's like a little loud in the middle of the day. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I also feel like the scene in Birdland um, means more because we know that your mother is like someone who would never crash a party. So the fact that she does it shows that she's like, you know, trying to extra live a little and you guys are all game, um, it, which makes it so much more joyful than if we don't know that about her. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, in the story, I don't know if it's like that obvious in the video, but I'm pregnant in the video. Oh, yeah, I meant to bring it up at the beginning. Very, I meant to bring it up like, at the beginning. Yes. No one yeah. knows me. No one can see me below here, but I'm like very <laughs> pregnant in that video. And so it's it's striking to me that we worked on that. I mean, it was such a a way to sort of approach motherhood and, and just like contemplate the role of motherhood and through working on it in the story. But people should know when I'm rubbing my belly, I'm not very full. I had a child that came now with caution tape on his door. He's grown up. So, um, you know, something that, that I thought was kind of, uh, interesting about the story. And, and as we were working on it was, um, like, Oh, the, the scene with the suitcase, we've talked about this in other contexts. There are, my sister and I still debate which one of us had that experience. Right. We're like, basically certain it was me. But when we, when you and I were talking, I was like, this is so, I can envision every piece of it rings completely true to me. I can picture her. I can picture it. But that night was just such a like cavalcade of emotions that I was like, maybe it's because my sister came into the hallway and told me. And so she and I went back and forth and we both were like, it could have been, it could have been. And then we just agreed on the truth. Like she was like, you know what? It was you even though we agreed on that because we couldn't decide and because I, it had come up in my memory because we were working on the story. And so many people always ask us about the role of truth and storytelling. And what ultimately is like, that felt true to me. It feels true to me to this day, you know, but like if, if, if we were somehow able to go back in time and look, and someone was like, you know what, that was your sister there. And then she came and told you in the hallway, I'd be like, okay, maybe. You know, but the but for it to work in the story, it had to be tr- like I had to like have her sign off, and we had to agree on that truth, yeah. and then and then I had to be like, does that really really feel true to me? And then that was the truth of the story. But it's so hard sometimes to actually remember facts, and so then yeah. when we're putting together stories, we have to just like go back to like what was emotionally true, what what do you remember around it? How can you get really to the the pieces of the story to the best of your ability to remember them? And then yeah. when you can, then they may have a place in the story. And what matters to you most is it's definitely emotionally true to you. Like, it's not something, you know, you felt it. It's not something you made up. We used to say, I don't think we say it anymore because I think truth has become much more of a sensitive thing just in general in the world. And over the you know two decades we've been doing this, um, two and a half decades, but we used to sometimes say, do you remember this? It doesn't have to be factual, but it has to be true. And what we just meant is like memory is so fuzzy sometimes, but as long as it's the truth in your heart as you remembered it, that's what matters the most. At the end of every radio hour, you hear our producer Jay say that moth stories are true as remembered by the storyteller. Um, and so that's what matters the most um, is that your the story represents your own emotional truth because our memories really can be deceptive at times. For those of you in that in the book, I think there's 11, 12 chapters. And we originally wrote another two or three chapters, I think about truth. And our US editor, who's our first editor was like, 
like no, no one can no <laughs> choose anyways because <laughs> we're so obsessed with it because we spend a lot of time trying to get to the truth of things with people and people ask us about it so much to be fair they like do. that's a big thing yeah. and I think like people are always be like you know they'll beat themselves up I can't remember if their name was Matt or Mike like that's the and, and like that's the least important truth do you feel like right. it was probably Matt then it was Matt you know like that's yeah. not it how did you feel about Matt what happened with Matt who was there etc and so forth um and and that's like the truth that matters versus like were you seven or you eight choose that's not unless in between seven and eight something happened that means you know that would make a difference it matters exactly one of the notes we sometimes give to people is they'll say you know maybe I was eight maybe I was 11 and I mean that that's kind of extreme those are two very different ages that's a bad example but like we're like choose because if there's just a lot of maybe and I think and mm, mm, eventually it can become like sort of an unreliable narrator and just for the sake of the story just pick something that feels the most true to you and go with just that is better so, yeah. So, Catherine, I have a question for you. I mean, it's a question that we could ask any of us, but obviously, I mean, obviously there's a double level to this relationship because we were colleagues. So you had a colleague being like, I know we're working together, but I also want to tell you about the most important like transformation of my life. But as a director, how do you like care for yourself and care for a storyteller when someone comes to you with a story that means so much to them? Um, and regardless of whether ultimately you think you can work on it or not, like, how do you, how do you manage that? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely something I put a lot of thought into and I think we all do because I mean, one of the things that happens to us, of course, is someone will come to us with a story that means so much to them, but they're just so emotional. And one of the things storytellers are always afraid that they're going to cry and we're like, cry away. You know, people cry at the mouth all the time on stage. But if you, one of the things is like, if the person just can't get through the story without sobbing all the way through, they're probably not ready to tell it. Um, and I've had storytellers get really upset about that. Like they feel like the fact that I feel they're not quite ready to tell it means that maybe the story is going to have this terrible hold on them for the rest of their, their life. And that's not necessarily true. It just might mean that you're not quite ready to be with this material in front of an audience um, because it, you, you'll end up, you know, we sometimes call it like a vulnerability hangover. You'll end up, if you're on stage telling a story that you're not quite ready to tell, you can end up leaving feeling like unsafe. Um, and the audience can also be left feeling unsafe. And that's something, it, you know, we always say it's really messy turning people's life into art. You know, it can be really tricky. And so, but, but yeah, I always just try to, I also try to communicate a lot with a storyteller, like to make sure, I, don't, I hope I did this with you, but just like after we've gone back and forth to check in with them, oh, John is going to cut us off. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. But yeah, so there's a lot of that, a lot of checking in <laughs> and a lot of also reading, um, I would say nonverbal cues as to like their body language and things like that when you're working with them to make sure that they're okay. Yeah. I, I have one thought to add to that. And then I swear John will see, but completely like, yes, yes, yes. And I, I felt that. And I think like the freedom for me and the, the truth of it is, is that like, there's some experiences in our lives that will never be over. Like we'll have, right. I have closure, like, uh, of, of, you know, about what that night meant to me and about what my mother meant to me, but it doesn't mean that I no longer mourn, mourn my mother. And you sort right. of have to get, you know, that I'm not affected by the loss. I'm not an act of mourning, but like, I'm not affected by that loss, but you have to get to a place and a director sometimes has to be the one that yeah. says you are not, or you yeah. are. And here's, here's the part of the story that's maybe ready to be told, but this one, have you not anyway. All right. Hi, John. 
<laughs> now, listen, one more time for Catherine and, and, and for Kate for that fantastic and wonderful discussion. I appreciate it so much. I've learned a lot just listening to uh, the both of you. And we're going to uh, welcome back Meg and Ash, who have also learned a lot. Listen, this whole thing has been very informative to me, and I hang out with y'all all the time. <laughs> listen, never too late to learn. Never too late. So now we're going to jump into a bit of a Q&A. We've had people, um, they put some questions uh, in the chat. And so we're going to jump into a few. Uh, the first question we have going here is, uh, do you have any um, do you have any particular techniques you use to help storytellers remember their stories? Well, you go. Ahead. Ahead. No, you go. <laughs> I mean, one thing is um, to just picture the story in your head and tell us what you see, as opposed to memorizing. Um, I've, I've, a big fear storytellers have is that they're going to forget their story. And I have had that happen twice in like the 21 years I've been directing, producing them off. I mean, both times it was storytellers who were very memorized because it's like if you memorize and you can forget versus if you just sort of remember the, try to remember the beats of the story and picture it in your mind, you're much less likely to forget. I also, I have a rule that I don't like people to tell it too late in the day on the day of the show, because I find that if you do that, there's a risk you'll forget something because you'll be like, I just said that and you did two hours ago when you were rehearsing. Yeah, so stop saying out loud. I, my rule is after one on the day of the show. <laughs> but Meg, what would you say? Yeah, no, I, just to add to that, I often will tell people to make bullets. You know, you have bullets and think of it yeah. in scenes. And, you know, the other thing is when you're remembering the memory, you feel it when somebody is remembering something actively yeah. as they're telling it, it, it infects the words. You hear it in the words, the way that that you hear the memory kind of bubbling up. Um, but, but to not think of your story, you know, over, think, make bullets so that it's a little like, like you would directions, you know, you don't memorize a whole street map, right? You memorize, like take a left at the Exxon or, or at the BP or whatever, you know, depending on your country, you know, and, and you remember markers. So give yourself kind of mental markers to help you gauge your way through the story. Yeah. Another question we have is. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was like, I hope that's helpful. <laughs> Another question we have is, do you have any advice, any advice on where to start a story? Like they say, do you need to grab a listener early on, like at the beginning? I mean, I would, it's in the book. We talk a lot about it, but one of the things that I think is important, obviously you want your listener to be engaged from the very beginning of your story. So I wouldn't put fluff at the top. Um, but I think very early on, your listener does need to know why they care. Like, why am I hearing this story and why does the storyteller care? And there's many techniques to do that. Of course, you can put a scene, you can do a time dash, you can do, you know, we can talk about all the technical things to do it. But um, if you're, if you're, doing the act of taking someone else's time and the goal is to connect with them. They want to know why they would care and connect. I often find when you start in a scene that it really does engage people. Like you're immediately, it's like a movie. You're setting the stage. Like Ash was in that, he was in the funeral and he's describing all the ritual and how he feels. And so suddenly we know it's a funeral. We know, you know, so much just from this one scene. And so, you know, sometimes you'll start in the present. Sometimes you'll start with a flashback, you know, but often if you start with a scene, you can really kind of grab people right out of the gate. 
Yeah, I think with Kate's story, um, I, the, the love boat, he grabbed me. I was like, oh, the love boat. I was all, I was all the way. <laughs> the love boat. All the way. Yeah, um, we went. We went through a period of the moth where a lot of people, we have our open mic story slam series, um, which we have one in London. Please come out if you're anywhere near there. Um, but people would start like, you know, I'm standing on the edge of the cliff and someone says, jump. Let me tell you how I got there. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> it, became, it became almost like a, a sort of a trope or something. And we just try to pull people out of doing that. Because you know, I think, oh, if you do that, you'll win. And we were like, no. <laughs> I mean, sometimes that's the right thing for the story, but you don't always need to do that. No, and sometimes it feels very false when you're like, yeah. I'm standing here doing the, I don't know. No, you're not. You're on the stage talking to us. You know, it's like, you really want to tell it the way you tell it to your friends rather than act it out like, you know, a big drama cliffhanger. But- no, I, I, I think that's really key. Like tell it how you tell it to your friends, but you just end up telling it a bit more richly. Also, I think like the first scene can set the context for that you don't necessarily discover exactly why you're listening to the story until a little bit on. Like I'd not heard Kate's story before, but I found it um, incredibly moved. I lost my mom last year. I think that's the other thing about some stories, like some of them will have a lot of resonance for you. And even if they're sad, they can be very, they're still good to listen to. I've had a little happy, sad cry when I was to Kate's story just now. Um, so sometimes you listen to a story, but it isn't necessarily, there's something that makes you feel interested at the beginning. But the reason the heart of the story actually appears a bit further along, and that's not necessarily a conceit, but that's just, as in, it's not like a, a conceit in terms of a storytelling device. So sometimes that's just the way stories are and the way life is, actually. So I think that's um, those are some of the most powerful ones. Yeah, well said. I think we have about two minutes left, so we maybe get in one more. We have one that says... Um, uh, how do people come to be connected to the moth to develop and ultimately share a story? Um, well, there's a number of ways. One is um, you can come walk, come to any of our shows. We do a main stage in London. We try to do it once a year. I think, Meg, did we just get a date? Is it September 28th? Yes, in Chapel? So come out, you know, say hi to us if you see us there. Um, you can also go to, in, to any of our open mic story slams. Again, we do have them in London. Walk in, put your name, like go in just to listen or put your name in the hat. Um, and the first 10 names get picked to tell a five minute story. We announce the theme in advance. So that's another way. You can also volunteer. We're, I know they're always, our London producers are always looking for volunteers. We also have a pitch line. Meg, do you want to speak to that? Yes, <laughs> this is right. I mean, we have a pitch line. If you go on our website, themoth.org, and look for Tell a Story, um, it'll give you all the information to, for how to pitch us. You can call by phone. You can leave it directly in the on the actual website. Record a two-minute pitch. Generally, you know, don't don't worry about it being overly perfect. You know, you just want to tell us tell us a quick two minute version of what your story is about, why it's important for you to tell. And um, and yeah, and those slam stories, we listen to all the slam stories, any stories that are told and all those pitches. We listen to every single one. So if if you have a great story, we'll, we're bound to hear it. You could also get a job and then corner the artistic director. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds very personal. That sounds very personal. (laughs) Thank you again to uh, to, to Meg, to Ash, uh, to Catherine, to Kate. Thank you all so much. Thank you for this experience and and for, you know, taking us really behind the curtain and, and sharing these pieces of yourselves. 
Um, thank you to the audience. Thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you to uh, 5 by 15 for hosting us here. We are super yeah. honored and we feel privileged to collaborate with you. Grateful for the support. If you want to come to a UK um, Story Slam, the next one's going to be on February the 8th. It's going to be at Rich Mix. The theme of the night is In It Together. You prepare a, a five-minute story on the theme, In It Together. You come out there, throw your name in the hat. Who knows? It could be you. Listen, you can go to themoth.org to find out more information about um, the date, the time, and um, the theme, and to get your tickets. So hit up themoth.org. My name is John Good. It has been my distinct honor uh, to host this fantastic and wonderful uh, event here, right here uh, in London, but also in my living room. <laughs> so from all of us here at the hall, we will see you next time.